You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Howard Bloom, who is the author of New York Times bestsellers, including The Last Good Night, Dark Invasion, the Edgar Award winner, American Lightning, as well as Wanted, The Gold Exodus, Gangland, and The Floor of Heaven. About two years ago, we did a podcast with Howard about The Last Good Night. If you want to check it out, you should. Uh, it's an extraordinary book and uh, a story that most people don't know a whole lot about, so it's worth checking out. He's also a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Uh, earlier, while at the New York Times, he was twice nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. And he's also the author of a new book, In the Enemy's House, The Secret Saga of the FBI Agent and the Codebreaker Who Caught the Russian Spy. So welcome, Howard, again. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Nice to speak with you again. Always good to speak with you. So there, there are a lot of books on this topic. Talk about the atomic spies, the, the Venona code-breaking effort. Uh, what makes this book different? I think the audience is going to, you know, they probably read, whether it's Ron Radish or stuff from the Mirapol family or the, the dozens of books about this atomic spying and the Rosenbergs. What takes this book in a different direction? What I try to do, is, and what I do in all my books, is tell true stories, uh, but I write them in a, with a narrative. They're not academic texts. Uh, this is a true life spy story, and I write it as a true life spy story. I was particularly blessed, and what drew me to this book was the two main characters I had. I had a sort of rebellious uh, playboy FBI agent and a sort of detached quirky genius codebreaker working out of Arlington Hall, this uh, top secret facility uh, across the Potomac here from Washington, D.C. that used to be a girls' finishing school, a pampered place for pampered young ladies. So it was a, what I did is a character-driven story, uh, and I was able to do new research. You know, as you point out, the Venona decrypts are around, the codes have been broken and read. Uh, the information taken from 
uh, the fall of when the Soviet Union collapses is, is, is out there. But what was really new was the characters of Gardner and Lamphier. And uh, I was able to get my hands on that by talking to people close to them. Lamphier, uh, Bob Lamphier, my FBI hero, his widow, actually his fifth wife, uh, uh, was in a, at a retirement community nursing facility in Roanoke, Virginia. And I spent a, a good deal of time with her, and, sh and she introduced me to the rest of Lamphere's family, which is now out in Seattle. And they've printed their own private history of the Lamphere family, and, and many had stories uh, about the family. They provided me photographs, letters, uh, documents, and that was, enabled me to write this character's story. I also had access uh, to his personnel files from the FBI, and that helped me also get a, a sense of the professional man. Now, for Meredith Gardner, his uh, son and daughter are still are around. Uh, the son and his son's wife were very helpful. I went out to Wisconsin, spent time with them. They gave me a great many letters that uh, Meredith had written during the course of his life. He also kept oh, about a dozen notebooks, gray uh, notebooks, as if he were a schoolchild, where he'd write whatever on his mind, these amazingly complex exegesis on either a type of sherry, a type of tea, yeah. genealogical problems, some, some coding. Uh, they gave me access to his library of books, which was uh, <laughs> a quite an eclectic collection, uh, everything from dictionaries in different languages to philosophical texts, and they spent a good deal of time with me, helping me to recreate these two men. So now I had historical facts, I had my two characters, and I had the, the spy craft and an understanding of, of that, so I was able, I hope, to take readers on a true story that at the same time is a, well, compelling spy thriller. And you mentioned this is character-driven, and that's true for more than just the two characters that you've talked about. You really get into the backgrounds of a lot of these. I mean, we're we can call them in this book peripheral characters, but we're talking about Julius Rosenberg, we're talking about Sasha Fekhov, we're talking about these major historical figures. But these, these dual heroes of this book are incredibly different people. I mean, you alluded to, to a degree, but somehow their personalities are complementary. They, they kind of combine to become the perfect intelligence officer. Yes, each has what the other one was lacking, and together they make the perfect spy. I, I talk about that, too, with uh, Felsikoff, uh, Sasha, and his partner. Uh, Sasha was the more impetuous one. His partner was more plotting. But together, one was colorblind, one wasn't colorblind. Uh, together, they work out, too. And so I'm able to build a spy versus spy drama and make it true. Uh, the peripheral characters of the agents who are working in the ring of the Americans are also rich. You know, the Rosenbergs, the Green Glasses. Uh, it, it's a very, Klaus Fuchs, it's a very rich story. And adding to that, uh, my heroes, uh, Gardner and Lamphere, have written about their interaction with the various uh, agents who they were trying to track down. So again, there is a spy versus spy tension and I tried to make it as taut as possible at the same time true. I mean, looking at Lamphere, it's extraordinary that he was able to stay in the FBI because the FBI at the time was a white starch shirt fedora wearing, you know, complying with everything that Hoover wants you to do. And this guy, you kind of think of him more as like a street cop. 
and somehow he's able to last and have this extraordinary FBI career. He actually is not in the FBI that long. I mean, he, he you know, leaves by the time he's 34, I think. Uh, and, but he's very effective there. He is a real rebel at heart. He's a, a, a kid from Idaho who grew up in, in the mines uh, in Mulan, Idaho. Uh, his father was a mine operator, and he would send his son down to the pits to do the toughest jobs. And uh, still people in the mines would pick on him, so uh, Bob had to defend himself with his fists, which he was pretty good at, too. He was a hard drinker. Uh, in many ways, he was one of the reasons why the Me Too movement uh, was, was long overdue. He was a, a real womanizer. Uh, and that actually works very well into the operational history uh, of this story, uh, because Arlington Hall was a, a facility that was mainly staffed by women. Uh, the first time Lamphere goes there, he, he's shocked to see this army of women uh, hidden in the Virginia countryside. And that keeps him going back right. time after time after time when Meredith Gardner really, at first, doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Lamphere work, walks into his office, and he's been sent there. Gardner knows he's coming, and, and Gardner is trying to crack the codes, and Lamphere is there to help him. He doesn't quite know how he can help him. Uh, and, and he says, well, what can I do? And Lamp and Gardner pauses for what seems like an eternity and then says, I don't know, and their conversation goes downhill from there. Well, what's interesting to me in, in, in historical hindsight, which is always fun, is when Lamphere was assigned to the Soviet espionage squad at FBI, essentially he thought his career was over. This was, as you even said, like being shipped off to Siberia, that there was nothing worth doing with the Soviet espionage in the middle of World War II, the Soviets are our allies. And seeing this as the perception within the FBI of not just the FBI writ large, which it was, but of the guy who would have such an impact on uncovering Soviet espionage is almost comical if it wasn't so important. It, 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 it's, it's ironic in many ways, and that's why his awakening is, is so energizes him. I mean, he feels he's spending most of his time doing watcher's work, surveillance duty, and he says, the guys I'm following around, it doesn't take them long to figure out that the guy in the suit and tie and the fedora right. uh, has to be an FBI guy. They get onto that pretty quick. I'm just wasting my time. And yet, when he finds out the existence of this Soviet plot to steal atomic secrets, it energizes him. What makes them an interesting pair, Gardner and Lamphere, is both of them go into this without any real expectations right. of what they're going to find. Uh, I mean, for Lamphere, he's just doing duty to get out of this watcher's work. And for Gardner, it's puzzle solving. It right. has nothing to do with the real world. He feels he's totally detached, and he's going to be trying to put the pieces together. Uh, you know, once the encipherment's removed, trying to then break the code. There's very few people know the name Meredith Gardner in the kind of the lay world. I mean, Alan Turing has become kind of this bigger-than-life legend in code-breaking, but Gardner has to be, in the same sentence, certainly, if not arguably a more difficult, more difficult job than Turing had. You know, it's hard to compare geniuses, right. but, you know, Meredith Gardner was a national hero, and what he did was amazing. And it's, you know, an accident of fate that he was sent to Arlington Hall, or he took that duty. Uh, he had grown up 
first in, in Mississippi, and then his father died, and the family moved to Texas, and his mother ran a boarding house. And once his job at the boarding house as a young kid of six or so was to deliver the mail. And one of the boarders, an itinerant traveling salesman, got a Yiddish-language newspaper. And it took Gardner just a day to figure it out. Uh, and then he was fascinated with languages. He did language studies at the University of Texas, uh, then at uh, Wisconsin. And at Wisconsin, uh, he was considered by everyone in the graduate department as our genius. Well, and this is a kid that, at eight years old, picked up multiple languages, like you mentioned, like Yiddish and Hebrew and German, of just looking at them as a code versus learning an entirely new language. It was right. like these symbols mean words in English. And, and that's why his notebooks are so fascinating. You can sort of get a, a glimpse on how a rare mind works. When he comes to Arlington Hall, and they've, he's assigned to work to help break the German codes, but then they move him also to the Japanese codes, the, the magic uh, codes that we're working on. And to work on that with any accuracy, you need to know Japanese. He doesn't know Japanese. In three months, while also working on the German codes, he teaches himself Japanese fluently. I, I took 18 years of Spanish in school and then another 10 years of Russian and, and in three months, he learns Japanese. And I have C-plus French, I mean. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and this is somebody who, you don't have to be a genius talent scout to, to realize this would be somebody who is incredibly important and an asset to signals intelligence, to you know, intercepting communications and then in doing code breaking. Right. It's, it's, it's a natural fit in many ways. Right, and, and he meets his wife there. I mean, and she's helps reinforce his life. Uh, Blanche Hatfield comes from a family of well-known linguists. Uh, I think her brother becomes head of the German department at Harvard. Uh, her grandfather was a university president, uh, and she's working there. She's a, a Phi Bay from Mount Holyoke, and she was in the German department uh, at University of Wisconsin before she came to Arlington Hall. She was one of the few women who actually went there with academic credentials. A lot of the women learned to be code breakers because they were just smart. Mm -hmm. uh, and But she came there with these academic credentials. And she sees Meredith Gardner working across the room. And she's heard so much about him from her professors. And she finally gets the nerve to go up to him. And she says to him, in German, I think you were a legend. And that's how they first meet. And you know they were married for the next 50 years. Yeah, you mentioned in the book how odd this this coupling is is they they have a full for first conversation in german without really realizing that they're having a first full conversation in german well well bob lamphere you know married this good friend uh by the time they they meet up again and they're both retired uh, bob's on his fifth wife yeah well a lot of people may not understand the idea behind going after the soviet codes because this wasn't after World War II ended and the Cold War had began before we finally started chipping into the Soviet codes. It's actually during World War II when we're allied with the Soviets. We have plenty on our hands already trying to make German and Japanese codes. But there was a point in which we said, let's break the Soviet ones as well. Well, let's see if we can break right. them. Uh, right, sorry. <laughs> uh, and why did we do this? It was a sort of a wishful project. We knew the peace talks would be coming up. Uh, one of the generals involved was a poker player. And his metaphor, well, the best way to win in poker is to know what the cards the other man is holding. So let's see if we can 
break the Soviet codes. The Soviet codes were impossible to break because, in effect, they locked it once by encoding it, they locked the code again by enciphering it, and then they threw away the key by using a one-time pad. Uh, and that was, you couldn't break it, it was foolproof unless you do something foolish. Right. And in 1941, when the German uh, tanks were outside the gates of Moscow, uh, the uh, Kremlin uh, cipher clerks thought there were more important concerns for Mother Russia than to protect the integrity of the one-time pads, and they used them with three slices of carbon paper rather than one. Uh, that came back to haunt them. It made their impenetrable wall penetrable. And the genius code breakers at Arlington Hall took it apart brick by brick, brick by brick, and that got rid of the encipherment, but they still had a code. Right. And it was up to Meredith Gardner to try to crack this code. And this wasn't a, a, all of a sudden, let's start collecting Soviet messages. There were warehouse, well, that's their exaggeration. There were huge filing cabinets and rooms full of Soviet messages that had been intercepted, not read, but intercepted already that kind of foundation for this code break. We, we had thousands of Soviet messages. You know, uh, General Sarnoff, uh, who was also head of the RCA Corporation, Radio Corporation of America, would normally, any Soviet cable that was shipped through RCA was given to the government. And then once war was declared, the uh, telegraph agencies had to uh, share this. They were encoded, and they just were lying there. And when they first began this project, think how naive we were, we give these pages with numbers on them to a woman who was a former school teacher. Uh, she probably was 22 years old, and we ask her, can you make head or tails of this? Uh, I can't even make head or tails of my American Express bill yeah. each month. Uh, and, and so it's interesting, until the professionals got in, and it was, they notice repetitions, they notice uh, that the one-time pads have been reused, and then they give it to Gardner to try to break the code. and. You know, he's a couple of things work work in his favor. A code book that was recovered uh, in Germany by our forces there, and a a black bag job. Right. The FBI had made a warrantless entry of the Soviet trade mission in New York, and they had photographed plain text cables before they had been uh, encoded. And Lamphere was able to uh, get these and deliver them to Gardner. That's really was the basis uh, of, that changed their uh, sort of antagonistic relationship into a courtship. Mm -hmm. uh, and they became friends because of that. And that was, you know, Meredith, after he looked at those plain texts, said, we've hit the jackpot, and uh, they moved forward. And they also used we, and they, that's how they became a team. But then even when they moved forward, and they were finally able to read these codes, most of the agents had cover names. Right. And, and another mystery. Uh, was at front of them, and our my two heroes had to go off in another direction. Well, what I think you do really well is to show how these two kinds of, of investigations of intelligence collection feed off each other. That a lot of people look at the breaking of any codes, whether it's Venona or of Enigma or the Japanese Purple Code, as being purely a cryptologic or cryptanalysis problem. And in this case, you show how. Lampier was able to provide information to Gardner, and then Gardner was able to break something and give information back to Lampier to help their investigation move forward and then going back and forth, and how counterintelligence and SIGINT, the partnership was key to unraveling this mystery. 
Very, very much so. And they both entered a realm that suddenly wasn't a game, became really real. When they read the first telegram that talks about Operation Enormous, Enormous was the uh, KGB plot to steal our atomic secrets. And they have to find the people who did that. They assume they're still operational. And they have to prevent them from stealing our next super bomb, the hydrogen bomb. At this point, the FBI was basically drag kicking and streaming into focusing on the Soviets. Lamphere was kind of calling for it. He wasn't necessarily getting great reception within the FBI. It's really a, a strange letter in Russian that kind of got the ball rolling when it came to the FBI. That that included some interesting historical personalities that people may have heard of. <laughs> well, the. The letter arrives at Jagger Hoover's desk, and it's written in, in Russian. It's directed to him, and it's amazing that <laughs> it could get get there. And it was written by someone key inside the Russian embassy who's talking about active Soviet agents in America. And it's also written about the same time that a, a, a cipher clerk has defected in Canada, a guy by the name of Gusenko. Uh, and those two events make the Bureau sort of sit up and take notice. Uh, they weren't really involved at, at that time. There also then comes Elizabeth Bentley, right. uh, the Red Queen, and her information is not really actionable. Her character, uh, they have raised eyebrows ab about. Uh, but these are sort of you know, footprints in the sand, and perhaps even bloody footprints that they're following. Uh, that makes Lamphere become aware. And then finally, when they read the telegram about Operation Enormos, uh, that's when he realizes we've got something real here on our hands. Well, in some cases, the information in a letter that Gazenko gave, that Bentley gave, was so outrageous, or so it was thought, that it might even have been disinformation from the Russians because they were giving, they're saying that there are spies everywhere that they had infiltrated all the high levels of America. I mean, basically it's what McCarthy was saying. Right. So, but McCarthy says it later on, right? This is even predating right. McCarthy in this case. And it's one of these things that if this story is true, we've been infiltrated so badly that we may not be able to, to recover from this. So it's understandable in hindsight, I guess, that they kind of blew this off a little bit. But it wasn't until they had much more specific information, particularly about the atomic bomb, they had to stand up and take notice. And then once, it, uh, you know, 1949, when the Russians you, uh, have their atomic right. device, uh, it's a catch-up ball game. I mean, that's what infuriates Lamphere, uh, that he's playing catch-up. Uh, he said the Soviets are way ahead of us, and, and we've got to keep on, on going. And it keeps, keeps him going. And then finally Hoover gets on board, and he's sort of riding on Lamphere's back. Uh, when he wants to find out about Klaus Fuchs, uh, he uses Lamphere. Right. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So let's go back to the code-breaking side. Let's talk a little bit about the program, the program that became known as Venona. Uh, you've talked already about the fact that if, it, if they had kept faithful with the one-time pad concept, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, but combined with the rigid formalities that you would find in these kinds of conversations, same in the same way that the purple machine, the Japanese purple code was broken because these are diplomatic messages that had, you know, to his royal highness, at, you know, at, you know right. emperor so-and-so, and then at the end, you know, your most humble servant, those kind of things can be used as cribs, essentially, especially if you're reusing one-time pads. And then the too many sixes issue. Can you talk a little bit about that epiphany? There was a guy who was 19 years old only, a guy by the name of Phillips, and he was really looking for a summer job before he went back to school uh, during the war, and he goes to Arlington Hall for a summer job, and he, he stays there at Wendell Phillips. And it's a tall string being of, of a man, sort of like Gardner. And he is able to notice these introductory messages, and they can tell the start of each message. Why do these occur? The Soviets at one point changed their code because they had a suspicion was leaked. Uh, someone in the White House administration heard about the Arlington Hall project and passed this on to the Soviets, and that made the Soviets change things. So they put in this new rigid formality, and that made the code, ironically, easier to, to break. At that point is really where Gardner comes in, and his eureka moment is about the fact that some of these names, places, quotes, would not be written in Cyrillic would actually be written in these documents in English. And at some point, there would need to be something in the message that said, here comes part of the code right. that would not be written in Cyrillic. And if you could figure out kind of the beginning quote, end quote, and you're not just going to have quotation marks on your code, you're actually going to have a numbered code to designate those things. And it's unlikely that's ever going to change. Right. And if you could get the first name or the last name of a of a well-known name that's being used, get closer and closer. In many ways, it's like Wheel of Fortune. If you ever see the TV show, you're trying to get a vowel and a consonant, and you've, you work your way to get a, a word. And Gardner had a code book to work with, a Soviet code book. And that didn't give him the codes, but what it gave him was the format. I, I, I talk about it's like giving someone who wants to be a writer you know, Moby Dick to read and say, this is what a novel looks like. Right. And you can sort of get somewhat aware of the challenges and how a novel is, is arranged. And, and that's what, how the Soviet code book helped him. Well, in particular, when you had a message being sent right after a major policy decision by the government, a major speech by Churchill or Roosevelt, you can assume that they're going to be reporting back to Moscow. Yesterday, FDR gave a speech in which he said this, 
And then all of a sudden you have plain text to compare to the code. And two, in, in lend-lease shipments, for example, uh, they could get the actual inventory of what was being shipped and compare the two, and that would give them letters and words and numbers. So they were able to mix and match. I'm simplifying a great right. deal. Well, you have to. I mean, there's no way uh, most of us will understand but, but, how this but, works. But, but it, it, it's just not fair not to give Gardner and the people who work with him credit because it really was acts of genius. And, and once letters were, well, messages were being broken consistently, that's when the question about distribution became incredibly difficult. Who should know about this? Because I, I, I deal with this, this is my time period that I deal with, and then the, the question about who knew about Venona is pretty extraordinary. The idea that the President of the United States had no idea that we were reading Soviet messages. The director of the CIA had no idea. And the list was as short as the kind of the ultra list was during World War II, but it didn't include some of the top policymakers in the country. And it didn't include people who would then have to weigh in on once the spies were caught. I mean, this is one of the dangers of intelligence that affects us to, today, to get off the historical mm -hmm. approach for a moment. But, you know, witch hunts don't exist. But, uh, witch hunts exist, but witches aren't real. And, and, and facts are real, though. And why didn't the government share what they knew uh, about the Rosenbergs? Uh, why did they keep these secrets? I think it wasn't to protect the Soviets from finding out that we're reading their codes. There were two moles in Arlington Hall, uh, including Kim Philby, had passed on information about what was going on, on there. And this protection of, quote, the national interest, unquote, is, is dangerous uh, because they factionalized America. They allowed people like McCarthy to opportunistically piggyback onto this issue and, and ruin lives. And that's just wrong and, right. and, and not good for America. And, and, you know, the president is, is yelling witch hunts about witch hunts today. Let's get the facts out there. Well, and, and it seems like Lamphere was somewhat on board with that concept because he was told not to mention anything about sources and methods, certainly not to mention anything regarding that this was an atomic situation, but he understood that the best way to get people working for him to get their, their act together was to kind of send out a message saying, we have some information that the, the Soviets may have in, you know, done some fission research espionage, please help, and that worked perfectly because he had everyone jumping through hoops to do what they could to help him with his investigation. But at one point he was reprimanded for, for being not as secretive as he could be when sending out uh, messages to the FBI field bureaus. Uh, it, was, it was odd that these two men had to live with this, this knowledge. And really, I think there may be six people in the United States who knew about it. Well, you talked about Klaus Fuchs, and that, that's really the case that opened the door. That's you know, where the dominoes begin to fall. And that's what Sasha, the Russian spy, says. The dominoes are going to fall when they get Fuchs. And even in this case, there was instances where, yes, cryptography breaks the kind of the door open to get to Fuchs, but even in this case also helps the investigation against him. It wasn't just identifying him. It was constantly supplying Lamp here and the FBI with keys to conduct the investigation and the interrogation of Fuchs. I mean, when, when they get Fuchs, and Fuchs is now 
in England. He, he was working at Harwell, and he's arrested there finally. Uh, and Lanfear goes over to interrogate him. He's sent by Hoover. Why is he going there? Because they can't find out. Fuchs has revealed that he has a courier, someone named Raymond. And the British can't get anywhere with this. So Gardner finds a Soviet cable where they talk that the courier met with Fuchs's sister. And they send two FBI agents from the Boston field office to meet with the sister, and she's in Cambridge, Mass. And she doesn't, can't really remember him too well. But as they're leaving, her husband said that the man mentioned in passing that he might have been an engineer or a chemist. The, man, uh, the husband couldn't quite remember. But that puts them on the trail to find the chemist, which leads them to Harry Gold, which leads them to get photographs and moving pictures of Harry Gold, which they can then show to Fuchs to identify him. And once they have gold, uh, they have every, everything opens, yeah. yes. Well, getting the gold, again, in hindsight, it's, it's interesting that the FBI knew that they were looking at people within the Manhattan Project, but their initial suspects... Today, we would think of as the least likely people to potentially be spies for the Soviets. Edward Teller was like their primary suspect, right. and they looked like people like Stanislav Ulam who, and, and Viktor Weisskopf, who were two of the more key integral people in creating the American atomic and then later on thermonuclear program, were their, some of their key suspects. Like, it's got to be Teller. <laughs> Teller? Really? But at the time, they're thinking in very different ways than we obviously are today. Well, some of the FBI agents who were in the field offices couldn't put the pieces together at all. And, and Lamphere was totally frustrated all the time having to try to instruct them and educate them and at the same time not be able to reveal too much right. to them. And that, you know, one of the great case studies about not being able to reveal things like Venona is, is, is the kid, is Ted Hall. You know, the, the arguably, other than Fuchs, Fuchs and perhaps one or two, other, maybe someone who had been sent from the GRU to actually get into the Manhattan Project, Hall was the most damaging spy for the Manhattan Project. He gave them more information than anyone else, and more important information because of his work on very specific problems within the And Manhattan as Project. you say, he was a 19-year-old kid from Harvard. His, his roommate, you know, Savile Sachs, uh, was his courier. Uh, and, you know... Hall gets away, winds up spending his life in Cambridge, England, as a, uh, I think he's a biology professor. Yeah, he lives the rest of his life in freedom. Yes. And we knew that he was a Soviet spy. Yeah. Like, this was, this was something where it wasn't, like, fishy. It wasn't, like, people are still arguing today about, is Alger Hiss this code name or that code name because the dates don't match up. So you can have a, you know, all-day conversation about these kind of guys. But Hall is dead his, to rights. His name is on yeah. Claire in one cable, uh, and so is Savile Saxis. Uh, it's well documented, and then their code names, uh, young and old, it, it's all there, and the damage they did is amazing, and they were so able, so easy for them to do it. I mean, just Savile Sachs going across America on, on a bus like a Simon Garfunkel song, but in the bottom of his sock he has <laughs> questions for his Russian handler uh, for Hall. Uh, it was so easy to spy on us. A, we were so naive, yeah. and I wonder if we still are. Yeah. So I, I, really the elephant in the room is 
some of the conclusions that you make that others have made before you about the particular guilt or innocence of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Um, you, you present some of the information. I mean, the, 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 the quote from, from Sasha uh, that is used repeatedly is about uh, their relationship, Julius Rosenberg's relationship uh, to his handler. Uh, we're not talking about the guilt of Julius as a spy. I think that's been well established. Um, but their relationship does give us some insight into perhaps how much of the family was involved in this, particularly the Ethel question is really the one that comes up more than anything else. Well, the key word is involved. Right. I mean, there's no doubt that Ethel knew her husband was a spy. And the case could be made that she helped recruit her, her brother, David Greenglass. She went to uh, Ruth Greenglass and, and arranged this and made the opening conversation. But was she an active Soviet agent? I mean, the cable that Lamphere and Gardner had was Christian name Ethel does not work. And Gardner has a, one of his special reports, as he called them, going through all the Russian uses of work, and this means she did not do intelligence work. She also did not have a code name uh, the way Ruth Greenglass did, who was WASP. Clearly. Well, and everyone else did. Right. I mean, the list of code names, whether it's Caliber or Antenna or Liberal or King, or everyone had a code name. Was she guilty of treason? You could make that case. Was she... Did she steal atomic secrets? I don't think so. I, I think that's quite clear she didn't. And in the drama I write, Gardner and Lamphere's lives are, are ruined by this realization. I mean, by having the knowledge that Christian name Ethel does not work, having read that cable uh, sent to Moscow Center. And yet, they're shocked first when both Ethel and Julius Rosenberg are, are indicted, and they figure, well, the government just wants them to tell all they know. Lamphere, of course, wants, wants uh, Rosenberg to tell all he knows. Uh, they think, well, they once put them in the trial starts, and they think, well, maybe Ethel won't be convicted, but they can't reveal the information. Right. The prosecuting attorneys can't reveal the, reveal the information. The president, no. And then once Ethel is convicted, the most that uh, uh, Lamphere can do is convince J. Edgar Hoover right. to write a letter uh, to the judge, Irving Kaufman, asking for clemency. And to Hoover's credit, he does. Yeah, it didn't seem Hoover needed a ton of convincing because he, even Hoover, was saying, well, you know, there's not a lot of there there when it comes I mean, he had probably read the cable, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Hoover was certainly aware of what was going on at Arlington Hall, of what uh, Lamphere was doing, and and yet it doesn't work. And then my book begins on the on the, on the day of the exe- of the Rosenberg's execution, and these men' lives are are ruined. Uh, you know, Lamphere and Gardner are consumed with guilt. I mean, Gardner, as, as I said, started off on an intellectual exercise, and then he, as a patriot, he was trying to protect our country, our secrets. And then suddenly it takes another term, a very personal, hurtful term that leads him with a sense of dishonor, that he has to stand by quietly for the cause he believes in. And 
see a, a woman, a mother of two young boys, strapped into the electric chair and executed. Uh, he shortly leaves the United States to work in coding in England. Lanfear at that point is on his way out in his mind from the FBI. It isn't that much longer after that that he leaves. Both of these men never get over it. In the notebooks that I read from Gardner, he's still obsessing about it. Uh, about he, He's hoping that the Merpool boys won't come after him. And he says that sort of ironically, but at the same time, it's, it was a burden that he had to live with. It's interesting. Do you, do you have any indication why the government didn't do what was so successful in the past, and that's kind of team these two guys up to go after the interrogation of the Rosenbergs? Because Lampfear had successfully broken Fuchs and had been the lead on the case to kind of break down the dominoes there. It seems weird to me, and I'm not sure this question's been answered, about why that person, the one person that knew this better than anything else, wasn't the one to lead the post-arrest investigation. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. It's one that bothered Lamphere. I mean, Lamphere had all sorts of theories uh, that he would say in private. I mean, Richard Rhodes has a fascinating conversation with him that was taped uh, where he talks about Colonel Abel. Was he actually involved in, in, in the Rosenberg case? Lamphere believed that. They sort of... Lamphere was a rebellious thought. He, was, he wasn't your your average FBI, button-down FBI agent. And after the execution of the Rosenbergs, he sort of went rogue and, and, and saw that come in. They sort of pushed him aside. And it's, you know, interesting why they were so quick to push him aside. Uh, you know, he did come back identifying the Curry and the Fuchs case, but they didn't use him. And Gardner just didn't want a part of it anymore, yeah. a part of this real-world drama. Is there any indication in Gardner's notebooks about the frustration of, I mean, in the end, we only decrypted less than half of Soviet communications, right? Venona wasn't this magic bullet that just opened everything right. up to it. It was only ones in which there was a mistake made in the encryption process. So there's a lot out there that hasn't been decrypted. Did you sense any frustration in his notebooks or talking to his family or anything that, was that... That's been used as an, as an argument that we have no idea. You say, there is nothing in Venona that says X, Y, and Z. Like, how, how would you know, right? More than half of it is still unreadable. Right. Like, was there any frustration that came across or any mention of we could only do less than half of this? That was a frustration he lived with all his life. I mean, he saw that as a, a challenge that he was trying to live with at the same time. He was wary of the whole Arlington Hall mm -hmm. process because of, after Ethel Rosenberg's death, and he he wondered, what have I gotten into? Oh my gosh, uh, what has my life become from puzzle solving to am I an executioner? So, you've done several books focused on this world, um, including Dark Invasion, and then the last two actually done the, the last Good Night. Uh, do you have another one lined up? I don't. You don't want to give away your secrets, you know. But is, is this a, a genre that you're you're beginning to be much more interested and in, want to write more about? Are we going to see a book in two years that kind of follows this path? Another real world narrative spy book. Funny you should ask. <laughs> I actually have found something uh, that's a bit controversial. It's 
more a Secret Service book than a, a spy book uh, for a World War II assassination plot. Oh, well, that sounds exciting. We'll have to have you back. It's a uh, real-life Day of the Jackal. Okay, well, then we'll definitely have to have you back then. So the book is In the Enemy's House, The Secret Saga, The FBI Agent, and The Codebreaker Who Caught the Russian Spies. I can give my, uh, my two-thumbs-up perspective of this. This is my field. I've read all of these books, uh, and this one certainly brings new insight, particularly bringing it down to a character drama. Because I think that when we read about this stuff, uh, whether we're, you know, sometimes we talk about the, the Rosenbergs as kind of characters in this drama, but rarely do we get into uh, the lives of those that are doing this work. Uh, usually it's the work that we focus on, not the people doing it. So we really appreciate you taking the time uh, and joining us here in SpyCast again. Uh, we'll have you back soon to talk about your next book. Always my pleasure. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.